originated sometime in the second half of the 19th century, reportedly within the British India Office, the organizational body that managed the then provinces of British India. And at the time, this term, Middle East, referred to those managed provinces, which were made up of what is today India, Pakistan, Burma, and Bangladesh. In 1902, The term was used by an American naval strategist named Alfred Thayer Mahon, who was writing in the National Review in reference to the area between Arabia and India, with a specific focus on the centrality of the Persian Gulf and its surrounding region to the so-called Great Game of Asiatic influence peddling that was taking place between the British and Russian empires at the time. The term Middle East, then, became a designation for the land around the Persian Gulf that the British could not allow the Russians to take, because it was the most strategically important landmass in the hemisphere, beyond perhaps the Suez Canal in Egypt. That National Review piece was reprinted in the British paper The Times, and the concept of the Middle East was expounded upon by a British journalist and author, Sir Ignatius Valentine Cairol, who redefined the term over the course of a 20-article series entitled The Middle Eastern Question, to encompass all Asian regions that either border India or, in his words, quote, command the approaches to India, end quote. This term, then, was contextualized around an important British territory at this point in history, and not generally applied beyond that use case. This moniker, then, fell roughly into place between two other commonly used labels in the pre-World War era. The Near East was generally applied to Turkey and its surrounding geography. The Far East referred to China and its immediate surroundings. And the Middle East, after these articles, was often used in reference to the space between those two other regions, roughly the traditional Mesopotamian region, which is today made up of Iraq, Kuwait, parts of Syria and Turkey, and portions of the border between Turkey and Syria, and Iran and Iraq. From there, all the way over to what was usually called Burma, and which is today typically called Myanmar, that was the Middle East. Important to note is that these naming designations were primarily used in the Western world. These weren't universal labels. But the reason they were typically applied in this way in mainstream discussion back then, even in the regions in question at times, was that the Western world had established widespread control over this area, and thus they had a great deal of influence in terms of what labels were applied to it. The Ottoman Empire was still a force to be reckoned with, but the British had taken control of the Persian Gulf. The French had de facto control over Lebanon and Syria. Italy seized Libya and some near-coastal islands from the Ottomans, and the area was seen as a bit of a playground for adventurers and colonizers from European nations, a place to test one's mettle and come into contact with the exotic. In 1908, oil was discovered in Persia which is modern-day Iran, 
This was the first big oil discovery in the region, and it happened at an opportune time. The automobile was just starting to become a mainstream thing. Navies were being converted over to oil from coal. Factory machinery often ran on oil, and electric power plants were increasingly being built with oil in mind as their primary fuel source. The founding of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which became the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in 1935, British Petroleum in 1954, and BP in 2000, was a pivotal moment for the so-called Middle East as it pulled the British deeper into Persian politics, and they went on to shape Iran's politics and economy for decades, leading up to the eventual Iranian Revolution in 1979. But more immediately, it led to a land rush in this previously quite remote and relatively sparsely populated region. There were cities, but most were fairly infrastructurally frail, in part because of traditional organizational priorities, but also because they'd been occupied and fought over and bled dry by a lot of outside forces for much of their modern history. The incoming oil wealth changed the prevailing dynamic of the region, in practice and in perception. Instead of simply being land that needed to be watched and guarded because it was close to valuable European holdings and trade ports in the region, now the area itself was considered to be quite valuable. And that meant the advent of new squabbles, new claims being made, new confrontations with other European powers, but also with local residents who had been there all along, who didn't have claims that would necessarily stand up within the legal systems of these foreign governments. World War I slowed exploration and oil infrastructure building for a period, but it increased the ardency with which oil was sought afterward as the war made clear that oil would be a fundamental and vital resource for all future such conflicts, and for many of the technologies that were first deployed on scale during the war, but which would be used during peacetime. The Great Depression, which was felt worldwide, also reached into the Middle East, which collapsed a lot of traditional economic sectors, leaving these local governments and leaders more open to exploring opportunities that they were previously quite skeptical about, because they were suffering catastrophic economic losses and didn't have a lot of other options available. Throughout the interwar period, more countries in the region discovered oil reserves, foreign interests involved themselves with the exploitation of those reserves, and various, often new or revamped, power structures emerged alongside all the wealth these reserves entailed. Traditional animosities and alliances were rewritten by the year, and a large number of independence movements emerged alongside the conquests and formation of corporations. When the Ottoman Empire was dissolved following World War I, the term Near East fell out of common use, with Middle East taking on increased prominence in the English vernacular, referring to existing countries, but also all the newly emerging countries and governments in this swiftly developing, newly enriched and enriching part of the world. During that same period, this term was often colloquialized to reference not just a specific landmass, but a collection of countries in a loosely defined region, all of which shared the same 
religion, Islam. And though many variations of Islam exist and existed back then, being able to broadly gesture at the trends and history and happenings within the so-called Islamic world, which expanded the range of the term Middle East to include portions of Northern Africa as well, was often quite useful as a shorthand for certain types of discussions, even if it, as is the case with most such terms, often flattened groups of people and regions and overlooked important distinctions in favor of concision. Post-World War II, this designation became more fraught, though, due to the formation of a new Middle Eastern region state, Israel, which did not fit into that colloquialized version of the term Middle East. And this was seen by some as a great cause for celebration, by others as a major betrayal, and by others still as a massive complication in a region already beset with a large number of complications. What I'd like to talk about today is the emergence and early days of Israel as a nation, and the contemporary potential for an easing of relations between Israel and some of its neighbors. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Al Jazeera, and it's entitled How the World Reacted to Bahrain and Israel, Normalizing Ties. In May of 1948, the State of Israel was officially established by the Jewish People's Council at the Tel Aviv Museum. This state was formally recognized by both the United States and the Soviet Union, the two superpowers that were most intact and in control in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And Arab League states, Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, did not approve. They very firmly disapproved, actually, responding to the announcement with an invasion of the region that some were now calling Israel, but which had the day before been called the British Mandate for Palestine. This announcement and the subsequent war fought between regional powers was the culmination of decades of work by Jewish organizations hoping to carve out their own state in a part of the world that is traditional and sacred in their religion, alongside a whole lot of illegal immigration into that region by Jewish people from around the world, especially just after World War I and into the post-World War II years. There was also both tacit and declared support for the formation of a Jewish state at various times from major world powers and from organizations like the League of Nations and then its successor, the United Nations. The UN General Assembly vote on the question of Palestine supported a United Nations Special Committee recommendation that the area, at the time held by the British, be divided up into a Jewish nation, an Arab nation, and the city of Jerusalem, which would be separate from both and run by an international trusteeship system. Before this division could be carried out, though, a civil war was sparked between Jewish and Arab communities in British-held Palestine, and Egyptian soldiers joined the Arab side of this conflict, successfully implementing a blockade against the Jewish side. This blockade held 
and the conflict resulted in the United States withdrawing their support from the planned partitioning of the country, which encouraged Arab League countries to double down on their efforts, thinking that they could maybe keep other Western interests out of the area if they continued to show their military resolve against the breakup of Palestine and this new Jewish state being dropped in their midst. The Jewish side was able to get arms and other resources from supportive Americans and from Stalin's Soviet Union, and they used these resources, along with compulsory military training for everyone on their side, to claim mixed areas, Jewish-Arab mixed areas of the country, which caused hundreds of thousands of Arab Palestinians to flee to neighboring countries. This sudden surge in migration across their borders, a true migration crisis, was part of what catalyzed more ardent Arab League involvement in this conflict, and is part of what led to the aforementioned invasion by some Arab League states of the very young nation of Israel. So the new state of Israel was on the defensive for the first few months of its existence, and was therefore pretty far behind in terms of organization and arms compared to their opponents. But after a few months, they had received an influx of Jewish World War II veterans from around the world, and arms from Czechoslovakia, which broke a UN resolution in order to provide those arms and the Israelis were able to push the Arab League militaries back, while also conquering some of the areas that had been designated for Arabs in the UN resolution along the way. A series of armistices were signed between Israel and the Arab League countries the first quarter of 1949, though no peace agreements were signed. Conflicts between these countries continued for the next few decades, though, with a few notable strikes, like a well-planned attack on Egypt by Israel, France, and the United Kingdom after the Egyptian government nationalized the French and British-owned, but Egypt-located, Suez Canal, which connected the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea, and which was the biggest source of revenue that the Egyptian government had at that point. The strike on Egypt lasted only until the United Nations could get involved, which led to a pullback and peacekeeping efforts. But that short conflict lit the fuse on future conflicts between Egypt and Israel in particular, arguably culminating with the closure of the Straits of Tehran to Israel, which made shipping things in or out of the country very, very difficult, an act that previous Israeli governments had said would amount to a declaration of war if it ever happened, because of the importance of the straits to their economic well-being. The Six-Day War was a very short conflict that was sparked in part by the closing of the straits, but also by continued embargoes and other aggressions from Arab League nations toward Israel during this time. Many smaller skirmishes preceded this war. There was even a pre-war aerial clash between Israel and Syria. But once the war got started, the conflict was so short, in part because Israel fully militarized its citizenry, essentially shutting down its economy for the duration of the conflict, but also because Israel launched a very successful surprise attack against Egypt's air force, destroying the vast majority of that air force while it was still on the ground. By noon of the first day of the conflict, the Jordanian and Syrian air forces 
were also destroyed by aerial bombings conducted by the Israelis. And this opening gambit is considered to have been one of the most successful aerial campaigns in military history because of the dramatic advantage that it gave Israel against their opponents in this war. The war started on June 5th, 1967, with that surprise attack by the Israelis, and Egypt and Jordan agreed to ceasefires on June 8th, followed by Syria on June 9th. Israel signed the ceasefires on June 11th, bringing the war to an end. In the aftermath, Israel claimed the Gaza Strip and Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights region from Syria. As is often the case, this war, in some ways, fed the next war, a conflict often called the Yom Kippur War, or Ramadan War, which lasted from October 6th until October 25th of 1973. This time around, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack against Israel on Yom Kippur, an annual holiday and day of rest, fasting, and prayer in Judaism, which also fell during the month-long Muslim holiday of Ramadan. After a few days of success for Egypt, which hoped to reclaim some of the land that was taken from it in the previous war, Israel responded more fully, and the two countries were brought to a stalemate before Israel was able to push back against both countries, taking the offensive and getting scarily close to the core of their inhabited regions before the UN stepped in with a ceasefire, which then unraveled in very short order, with both sides blaming the other for that unraveling. A successful ceasefire was finally announced on October 25th, in part because the Israelis were on the brink of completely annihilating the Egyptian military, and the Cold War-era superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, were supporting opposite sides of this conflict. The U.S. was supporting Israel, and the Soviets were supporting Egypt. Thus, there was plenty of incentive to keep things from going any further, lest those two superpowers feel the need to get more directly involved, potentially sparking World War III. Even with that ceasefire in place, though, the dynamics of the region were changed pretty substantially as a result of that particular conflict. One of the most fundamental consequences of this war was the advent of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, which began in the 70s as a series of conversations between the involved parties, brokered by outside parties, and which then, arguably, entered its modern phase with the introduction of the 2003 Roadmap for Peace, which was proposed by the Quartet on the Middle East, a collection of outside nations and metanational entities, the United States, EU, Russia, and United Nations, all of which were very interested in establishing peaceful relations in the Middle East, for a great many reasons, including that it would probably help prevent another standoff situation between global superpowers fighting each other through proxies in the future. The dominant theory of Middle Eastern peace that emerged around this time was that a two-state solution, an Arab state and a Jewish state, was optimal. And the real work was figuring out how to make everyone happy so conflict wouldn't keep brewing after firm divisions were made. 
In the years since, a great many talks have taken place between interested parties, and all of them seem to get hung up on the specifics of the plans, and the historical wrongs that each side believes should be righted in some way through the implementation of any successful plan. During this time, Israel has done a great deal to piss off the Arab world, including their increasingly draconian treatment of Arab civilians still living in Palestinian areas, and the slow creep of Israeli settlers into areas that were supposed to be set aside for Arabs, while at the same time, Arab citizens from Palestine, but also rabble-rousers from neighboring countries and regional radical organizations, have done their best to kill Israelis, disrupt the functioning of the country, and generally sow terror by whatever means possible. There's a great deal of fear and hate on both sides of this conflict as a result of all of this. A slew of peace plans and operational agreements have steadily rolled out over the past few decades, but each has been swept aside due to the consistent tensions, conflicts, threats, and fixation by both sides on very old but also quite recent horrible happenings and relations between these two groups and their allies. The aforementioned Al Jazeera piece is about a recent effort to achieve similar but not identical outcomes. Peace in the Middle East, as the saying goes, but through a somewhat different set of mechanisms that in some ways seems to be working pretty well, but in others seems like a bit of a band-aid on a vicious shrapnel wound. A solution to some problem, maybe, but potentially not this one. First, though, let's talk a little bit about what this effort actually is. On June 22nd, 2019, the United States Trump administration unveiled the economic component of a peace plan that they were working on, which has been led by President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner. The political portion of the plan was then released to the public in January of 2020, but by then, the economic portion had already been thoroughly criticized by both the Israeli West Bank Settlers Council and Palestinian leaders, in both cases for reasons that generally added up to, we didn't get everything that we wanted and they got too much, though some of the terms and conditions of the plan have also been more specifically decried as fantastical and impossible. At the time, this peace effort was considered by many to be dead in the water. It seemed like a political move by the Trump administration, and one that seemed to primarily benefit the Israelis, as the circumstances surrounding the unveiling of the plan looked a whole lot like a green light from the country's biggest and most powerful ally to continue moving forward, annexing land whenever they liked, even against the wishes of the Arab Palestinians, and they could do so with the tacit blessing of the U.S., on August 13th, 2020, though, it was announced that Israel and the United Arab Emirates would be normalizing their relationship, making it only the third Arab country to do so after Egypt and Jordan in 1979 and 1994, respectively, and the first Persian Gulf country to do so. And normalizing relationships means that they'll basically just treat each other like they would treat any other country that they did not viciously hate. Most countries in this region do not have open trade, much immigration, 
flights going to airports in each other's countries, those sorts of things do not exist between Israel and much of the Middle East at this point. As part of this larger announcement, Israel said that they would not be annexing parts of the West Bank as they had initially planned, at least for the time being. In the days following the announcement, it was also announced that there would be military cooperation between Israel and the UAE, and that telephone lines would be opened between the two countries for the first time. Shortly thereafter, the Bahrainian government announced that they, too, would be normalizing relations with Israel, and the Trump administration hailed this revelation as further evidence that there would soon be a torrent of Middle Eastern nations getting along with Israel, their long-hated regional enemy. There is a chance that this might actually be the case, that this pair of agreements, which is being signed the day I'm recording this, could actually lead to more downstream normalization. Maybe soon, maybe in a couple of years, as other nearby countries realize there could be more to gain through trade and collaboration than through continued animosity and regional conflict. There's also been word that the Trump administration has been making behind-the-scenes promises, or implications of promises, perhaps, to nations willing to step over this line which could mean anything from an owed favor to more favorable trade relations with the U.S., something that could be of significant value for leaders who are willing to irritate or completely lose the goodwill of other regional Arab nations who decline to do the same. There's another major implied benefit here in the shape of regional stability in the face of increasing Iranian belligerence. In recent years, Iran has made it pretty clear that it's looking to re-establish its dominance in the region, and some of the smaller but still decently wealthy nations thereabouts may be looking for allies for any potential dust-up with their more militarily potent neighbors, including Iran. And since Israel maintains military superiority in the region, through their own training and innovations, but also through widespread international support, from nations that view Israel as a counterbalance against Arab League dominance in the Middle East, having Israelis on your side if the Iranians start stomping around at your border could be worth the downsides of making this type of diplomatic move. Now, it's also quite likely that some of the benefits of these arrangements have less to do with regional or national considerations and more to do with the priorities of the individuals involved, those in charge of these governments who are making these deals. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in the midst of a flurry of political crises, largely having to do with his own alleged criminality, and those issues have only been amplified by his ham-fisted handling of the coronavirus pandemic. President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu have long been personal allies, helping each other out when the news cycles back home are against them, and this might be another case of tit-for-tat in that regard, Trump throwing Netanyahu a bone to give him some positive press back home after a flashy, peace-focused event in the United States, and Netanyahu providing Trump with the ability to claim that he is a peacemaker, after nearly four years of mostly bad marks when it comes to international relations in general. The de facto leader of the UAE, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, also has quite a bit to gain from this arrangement, 
both because of Iran's increasing threat profile for smaller nations in the region, and because the Trump administration has been good for their nearby ally, Saudi Arabia. Basically, his allies have been enriched, and his enemies have been diminished under the Trump administration in general, and thus helping Trump stay in office and playing ball with a seeming peacemaking request seems like pretty good political calculus, looking at things from that angle. The Bahrainians, who are even more closely intertwined with the Saudis, should similarly gain from this arrangement, and from the perpetuation of Trump's administrative dominance over United States foreign policy. Very not happy with this arrangement are the Arab Palestinians, who seem to feel more than a little betrayed by this agreement, and very concerned about what it implies for their own outlook. The discussions over a balanced two-state solution were continuing, in part because it was known that lacking such an agreement, much of the region would forevermore be up in arms against Israel. If those nations instead of being up in arms against Israel, are instead allied with them, or bare minimum, not blockading them and constantly on the verge of invading them. The impetus to do anything about the Palestinian situation is lessened, and it becomes more likely that any solution that does emerge will be severely one-sided in Israel's favor. It's probably prudent, at this point at least, to view this move with as much optimism as possible, but also with an understanding that a lot of people are benefiting from this on a more personal or political level, in terms of their prestige or in terms of personal favor exchanges with other powerful people, which doesn't necessarily mean that there are not other benefits that apply more broadly as a result of all of this, but it does mean that skepticism is probably warranted alongside all of that optimism. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Beginning of Infinity, Explanations That Transform the World by David Deutsch. This is the type of book that's a little bit difficult to reduce down to a simple explanation because it's so sprawling in the different fields that it covers, but fundamentally it's a book about science, it's a book about reality, but it's also a book about understanding, about history, about culture, about values, and though it's a bit of a chunky tome, it's definitely worth getting into. I think every single chapter had at least a couple of moments where I was left thinking deeply about something and had to step away from the book for a few minutes to cognate on that. And that, to me, is the sign of a good book because it's something that makes you want to stop and pause and think rather than just sitting in the waterfall of information and not doing anything about that information. It's a book that tends to tie together a disparate collection of different types of information. And that is a genre of nonfiction that I'm very much a fan of. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. 
Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.